I'm not pulling on my driveway. We all know what that means. It's time for another Drive to Work at Home Edition. So uh, today I have another fun interview. I have Elizabeth Rice from a casual playgroup. So uh, Ellie's going to explain what exactly is the casual playgroup. And then we're going to talk about um, how the casual playgroup worked with March of the Machine. So hello, Ellie. Hello. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited. It's my first time. I used to be a listener and now I'm here. I know. Exciting. It's wild. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So first up, let's explain what the casual play group is because yeah. it's a new, th- a relatively new thing. I mean, mm-hmm. it's been a couple years. I mean, at this point, it's been there for like two years, but still that's relatively yeah. new in the 30 years of Magic Zone. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, casual play team, was, we started in um, November of... Uh, of 2021 officially that's when i started at least and um our goals primarily as a team is to essentially give um our wizards us an opportunity into uh, the the casual world so people that play commander who play tabletop you know with their friends that aren't necessarily going to tournaments all the time or um you know whereas we have a ffl that's designed to um, take care of like constructed and standard play. We're here to take care of and guide what we find is the healthiest for these other very popular formats, like primarily Commander, but other things within them. Okay, so it's your job to make sure. Like the way I like to think of it is that the the um, the um, people that are doing play design, the the, mm-hmm. the competitive play designers, are trying to make sure that the competitive tournament formats are as fun as possible, that they are, that we're delivering what those people want. You guys are doing the same stuff, but just with more casual players and making sure that, hey, is magic as fun as it can be? Exactly. And I think, you know, we've, magic has been making commander decks for quite a while, for example, but it's not necessarily that um, there's a big difference with designing cards, uh, like, there's a big difference between designing cards and then developing cards with the health of that format in mind. And sometimes it definitely just takes a different sort of set of skills and it's really good to have both. So we get to make commander decks and and our, hopefully our intent, for example, is to take these products um, that we've been designing sort of before and, and get a healthier spin now that we have better ideas of what we want like the format to be for for everybody. Okay, so to, I think the best way to explain this is we're just going to yeah. talk about making March of the Machine. And so in the, yeah. I find using actual examples is what really helps people understand. So, yeah, okay. For sure. So let's go back. So what's the first exposure your team had to March of the Machine? When, when you guys first look at something? So we looked at it. So we got onto March of the Machines around a little uh, after the competitive play design team got a hold of it. So it's mostly the sets build out. It's in like the tweaking phases, so to speak. Um, so we got on to it. Uh, yeah, a little relatively late. I, I, that's what you I mean. Think or do you need more for, of like... For the audience so they understand, I think that the last two months of set design... Uh, the competitive play design team, that's when they start. Um, yes. And there's an overlap. So, like, set design ends and they continue on for a little while longer after pencils yeah. are down. So We start later than that, like okay. a little bit later than that, so okay. that um, it, it it makes sense, basically, so that different teams get to focus right. on what they need to. Did you guys start before pencils are down on set design? Like, can you make can you make changes to the actual set when you're starting to do stuff, or are you more effective yes. as commander? 
Uh, no, we can we can definitely still make uh, we definitely still are are on it at, uh, get onto it at a stage where we can change it. So pencils aren't down. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So let's take mom. So what what first impressions? Do you remember your first impressions of March of the Machine? Oh yeah, I do actually. I really remember how exciting it was because there was a lot of new stuff. So there was a whole new permanent type we were working with, which I remember that stuff when we were on the what a battle for was gonna do was kind of fluctuating. So that was both really exciting and really challenging. And I also remember seeing a lot of these like cool characters being uh, teaming up. And uh, we get to revisit a lot of those characters. So for me, my first impressions was just like this big, um, like explosive set with a lot of new stuff and also like revisiting characters that I really liked. So there was a lot of new stuff and a lot of excitement. Okay, so let's pick one of those to start about. Mm-hmm. Which, which aspect do you want to start talking about first? Oh, goodness. I feel like we should talk about the battles. Okay. we spent, Castle and I spent a lot of time <laughs> there. Yeah, so... Go ahead, sorry. Well, what I'm saying, so, I mean, so the thing that's important is um, mm-hmm. when we show the battles to the competitive play designers, the, the notes they're giving are about how they'll play in tournaments. What, what, right. what notes are you giving? So first time you see them and people are saying, what do you think of them? What was the first response? For us, we were thinking, we're not really sure if this is going to be um, intuitive in a multiplayer format. Um we're not really sure if, especially with how way the battles work, where you're giving them to opponents and your opponents have to defend. Um, at the time, that was kind of still in flux. And we weren't really sure if that was really um, going to make sense to a lot of commander players and be fun. Um, so that was mostly what we were focused on tuning and, and getting into a good spot is... Because uh, normally I think you, the, your opponent doesn't really want to defend. Like, I don't want to care about your permanence all that much. I don't want to really defend, um, you know, something. But so there had to be like a really good reason um, for at least our thought was that the front side had to be um, valuable enough and exciting enough that players would want to obviously put them in their decks, knowing that it might be hard to transform them. And at the same time, uh, we wanted the backside to be cool enough and exciting enough that it was worth the challenge of uh, overcoming, you know, your opponent's board state to get to them and that your opponents understood, right, this backside is serious enough that I do need to um, defend it. And that for a while, it wasn't very intuitive and it was a little bit confusing um, and hard to balance, right? Because it's like two cards in one and it's we're doing a thing that we don't normally do. How do we approach that? And we just had to do it by playing a lot of games. So, so here's something that gets brought up a lot when I talk to people online is mm-hmm. there's this... So anybody can attack, other than the person defending it. Anybody can attack it. Now, only the person who controls it gets the reward. Um, right. But did you guys talk a little bit about the politics of what it means that somebody else can attack your thing? Did that come up much? Yeah, we did. That was one of the things that we also, that at first was kind of unsatisfying to us where, right, we didn't see a reason for other players to want to attack our battles as well. Um, so like, or to like go after our battle so we could all get the bonus. And so trying to find, that was another thing we had to think about was, okay, are the backs of this exciting enough? Um, can, can, is there room for some designs to be a little bit more um, incentivizing for other players to 
go after them. Um, and we did find in some of our games where, right, we would talk it out where it's like, okay, if you can help me do this, I'll like help you do this. Um, but we do have to keep in mind, and I think this is something that people forget, that while Commander, for example, is a really social, is a social game, a lot of people struggle with social politics. Like for me, for example, I really don't like politics that well. So I tend to avoid um, game pieces that force me to do politics. I would rather just like to operate under very clear set of rules. And, I, you know, I'm not alone in that. So battles was, that was one of the challenge, right? Where it's like, oh, well, we might, there are going to be a subsection of players that aren't really going to like doing this or, or know why they want to do this. So can you give me an example of a suggested change that you guys made on one of the battles? Like what, oh. what's the kind of note that you would give on a battle that your team would get? Mm. Right. Let me think here. I mean, I can give some so, exa- examples and see if you can come. Like, did you guys yeah. suggest the changing the back of something so that it would be the reward would be different or changing the effect that when you played it? Like, did you, you know, wh- what, what yeah. I want the audience to understand is like when you guys are suggesting something, you're trying to make a better social game. I, I just right. give an example of what something like that would be. Yeah, so for example, it would be um, like, um, I don't have anything concrete off the top of my head because there were a lot of battles in that set. That's fine, just give, give, um, give me an, a, yeah. an idea and we, we can work from there. Right, so for example, like if we, what we would do, we would play with it and we would say something to the effect of, okay, the backside, if this transforms, the backside is punishing enough for the rest of the group that nobody wants to help me flip it. And so if we would maybe suggest, is there a way we can tweak this to either kind of bring that down a little bit so that the Paul, there's like an option where people are like, oh, well, I'll be fine with helping you or not. Or we would do something like, um, yeah, we would suggest on the like on the on the front end if so on some of them we did just have to accept, look, like this is a design enough to where that one person is gonna have to do the work to flip it. And does this help them do that or not? Mm-hmm. And so that it's a satisfying experience. We would we would do things like that. Yeah, the other sort thing of that's take the shape as it were. Important yeah. to realize and in some ways if you think of other competitive play teams, it's not your job to make every single card necessarily maximize it's to make sure mm-hmm. that you find the places like you guys want to look for what are the best casual cards and then make sure that those are in the best form they can be. Cause just like with competitive play, they don't make every card as good as they can for competitive play. They pick and choose yes. what they focus on. Yeah. We definitely pick and choose as well. And we pick, we have to decide, um, a lot of the times we use terms like net fun, like what's the most net fun for the table for what for that to happen and we kind of work from that so can you describe um, net fun yes. that's a really cool concept can you explain what that, yeah. what that means to the audience so net fun is like what's happening in the game obviously we know that players like to win and that's fun for them but in a game like commander where you're more of us you're more of like telling a story together um something that has low net fun or high net fun, net fun is more of just how much Fun is the entire table having, not just the person casting the spells or taking the game actions. For so, for an example, we kind of know that 
strategies where one person is monopolizing the clock, where they're taking a lot of actions, where other people aren't really interacting, they're just sort of sitting there watching, those are like tend to be a little bit lower because there's like less participation and people tend to check out. Or there's also very punishing effects that are very clearly not fun for a table, like a grave pack, for example, that's super low net fun. Like that just means everybody is suffering and that's not always that fun. Yeah, the way it's I heard for some people, but not for everybody. <laughs> the way I heard it described that really hammered home to me was so you can like you know uh, attach things to people so you can you know read all the, you know their heartbeat mm-hmm. and everything. So imagine you hooked up you know four people playing in a commander game and there's a little meter you can measure how happy they are. Mm-hmm. And the idea of net fund is just like it's all their scores combined, right? Yes. And that right. like how you know, much is everybody having? Right. So the, the idea is the perfect world is everybody's having fun. Everybody's at the, yes. the pinnacle of their fun. But, right, as you do things that are beneficial for you, they could be not fun for other people. And right, that, mm-hmm. that, that's where net fun comes from. Right. Exactly. So when we are looking at cards, we know that we have a ton of different types of um, players of magic, a lot of different who like different. There's a lot of different strategies. And so for us, for casual play, it's not that we want to remove anything that's low net fun we just want to get it into the most fun that that thing could be for the the collective um and so sometimes that does mean tweaking you know pushing cards in one direction or the other okay so let's move on from battles yeah to legendary team ups you talked about that um, oh legendary team ups were so fun okay so we're now the interesting thing about legendary team ah. ups is we get into legendary creatures which yes holds a special place i know for your team so let's talk a little bit it about does. the making of legendary creatures yes so um the making of legendary creatures super fun um you know at the time of mom we were still very nascent as a team um but what was exciting to us is that we are revisiting characters and in the design, what we're trying to do is find something that's both um, that has like a mechanical hook in terms of gets players excited to build around it, but at the same time feels like the characters it's showing. And that part was really fun to play around with um, so that it kind of feels like a good mix of the two different characters like Zimone and Dina coming together. What does that look like? Um, Baral and Karizev, like what does those twos look like? I think. Um, Jacob Mooney, who's also on the casual play design, he did lots of, like, he was very excited to pitch, um, like, redesigns that may have come up or just things like that because the characters are really cool. It's, I think it's almost easier sometimes, especially when you're newer to design, at least that's for me how it feels, to design um, cards and develop cards with characters that you're really excited about. Um, at least, yeah, that's that's what it was for me. So for, for mom, that's how it was. So let's talk a little bit about the hook. So you're saying when you make a legendary mm-hmm. creature, you need a hook. I know this. Yeah, I agree. W- one of the biggest lessons I know from making for uh, wizards making legendary cards over time is early on we made the error of they were just generally good. They weren't specific. So mm-hmm. let's get into what why why is a hook so important and what 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 makes a good hook? Yeah. So I think a hook is very important because we know that things that are gen- people will play things that are generically strong. Um, but that's not necessarily the most fun or the most like the best way for them to express themselves in Commander. So if you look at Commander, at least from the from the perspective of I'm a person who wants to express myself with my deck and my strategy, having a character, a, a legendary creature that specifically gives them something to do and gets to kind of say, hey, this is what I'm about. 
this is what's exciting. It's not just, you know, you look at the, and you kind of have expectations. If it's just kind of generically good, well, it doesn't really say all that much. It's just strong, so to speak. People can't see me, but I'm doing air quotes Mm -hmm. around generic and strong and stuff. (laughs) But yeah, so I think, so something like an important deck building hook is like, for example, if you look at a card that just says, um, whenever you play a spell, so actually Jin Kataxis is a good, um, good, good one to talk about because I think it used to say something like, whenever you cast, um, oh, I don't know if I'm allowed to, I'm just gonna go with it. Um, like it used, it, it could say something really broad, like whenever you cast a spell, draw, or whenever you cast an artifact spell, draw a card. At first, that might seem like a decent hook because it tells you to play artifacts, but when you think about it, um, there's a lot of cheap artifacts. There's a lot of zero cost artifacts. And that, because it's worded so vaguely and not like a little bit more like in a guiding way, um, it, or even if it just said, whenever you cast a spell, draw a card, it doesn't really tell you anything. But then if you do something like, right, whenever you cast like something, I think what it says now is like non-creature spell three or greater. Now that's pushing you in this like direction, a yeah. uh, deck building direction. Yeah. That's maybe more exciting and appealing than just what the generically strong thing would be doing. That I think is what makes a good hook. Yeah. What, so one of my favorite expressions that I use all the time is restrictions breed creativity. Yes. Uh, and I, I think that the idea is if I give you something that's just too broad, it's not exciting. And that yeah. it's, it's kind of having a limitation. Now you can, we can, there's the reverse where it's too many limitations where there's just not enough cards that you can make a deck out of. You, you don't want to mm-hmm. get too narrow, but there's a sweet spot where there, there's enough cards for you to think about, but not so many that it's, it doesn't really guide your, your building. Right. And for us, that's definitely, that is definitely the case. Um, and we also feel, you know, at the same time when there are so many legendary creatures, like right now, there, there are so many legends and we make a lot of legendary creatures and players like them and they're exciting. But I think it does put like a certain kind of pressure for them to like stand out more. It's like they are, you're not just, it's not just legendary creatures being compared to vanilla. It's like you're now having to compete with all these other legendary creatures. So what is it that makes this one stand out is kind of like another way that I like to look at them or approach them. So if I kind of feel like something's too, either too generic or something like that, where it's not like a hook, I just, I think, is this going to get lost in the sea of all the other cards that we make? If I feel like it is, then I'm like, maybe there's something we can buff it so players get more excited about it or there's something interesting for players to follow. And do you think the team-ups helped with that? I think in some ways they did. Um, They were definitely serving um, different... Different ones were serving different roles. Um, But yeah, I think we did a really good job on some of them, like getting them into good spots. Um, Oh, it's on the tip of my tongue. It's red, white. It's Hazaret. Is it Hazaret and Jeru? Jeru and Hazaret. Here, let me tell the audience what the card does. Two red, red, white, five, four, legendary creature, human god. As long as you have one or fewer cards in hand, Jeru and Hazaret has vigilance and haste. Whenever Juro and Hazard attacks, look at the top six cards of your library. You may exile a legendary creature from among them, put the rest on the bottom of your library in random order. Until end of turn, you may cast the exiled card without paying its mana cost. So let's talk about that card. Yeah. Yeah, that that was one I think that was um that was changed quite a bit. And we liked we liked this direction of, okay, you're playing red white legends. Um, it felt like because of the the abilities, it felt like these two characters. And it just we 
came to this and we're like, okay, if you're a person who really likes playing legends and you like attacking and going, you can do this thing. Um, and this would be exciting to you. And um, there were other ones as well. So like, um, I think Errant and Giada, which is one white, blue, two, three, that has flash of flying that lets you look at the top card library and you can cast spells with flash or spells with flying. Um, this was like an interesting one where it's like, right, there's 10 of two ways that you could go, or maybe you can find like a sweet plot of the two. Um, I also really like that well, where that one ended up. Probably my most favorite one though. I think the, actually I, people were talking about this like when the set was um, coming out or was bit like being released of mm -hmm. Kroxa and Kunaros. That one was so much fun. Um, it is the three red, white, black um, stick thick that has vigilance, menace, lifelink, because I'm a big keyword fan. And it has this graveyard synergy. So enters the battlefield or attacks. You can exile five cards from your graveyard. And then when you do, you can turn target creature card from your graveyard to the battlefield. So it's like this cool Mardu reanimator thing. So yeah, I think just the, there's a lot of them that we worked on. Um, I think I built Simone and Dina in my head the moment she was solidified as well. Um, there's a lot of the team ups that I think came together in this way that was like telling this, these stories of what these characters would look like and were not too restrictive, but like gave you something to do. Like it gave you a way um, to do that. That was really cool. Um, so yeah, I think it, it they turned out <laughs> they turned out pretty well. Okay, so let's let's segue to a different group of legendary creatures, oh, yes. the Praetors. So, oh, yes. so these are double face cards. So they were a Praetor on front. They were a Saga yeah. on back. It goes back and forth between those two states. Um, yeah. Is that is that good from from a casual standpoint? Uh, is that a cycle that you're excited by? Is that is that a cycle that leads to fun casual play? We were a little worried about it because having um, like the 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 going back and forth. Uh, between legendary creature and then saga and then it coming back as the legendary creature we were really nervous in terms of um like balance and the man like the value you were getting if it was too much um and the bigger challenge with them is that a lot of these were at least um at least trying to be preserved as much as possible for constructed like non-commander play and so we were this this is where we were having to really work for the first time with the competitive play design team on what's how to get them in the right spot to where they're not um, too low net fun uh, for Commander, but still exciting to play for, for both parties. And I was mostly excited about Urbrask. That was my favorite one. And Urbrask <laughs> was also one of the scarier ones. Um, so here, Urbrask, let's read him so the audience oh yeah, will know. Go ahead. So uh, two red, red. 4-4, four, four, Legendary Creature, Frexian Praetor, mm -hmm. First Strike, mm -hmm. whenever you cast an instant or sorcery spell, Urbras deals one damage to target opponent, add red, uh, and then for red colon, uh, exile Urbras, then return it to the battlefield, transform under its owner's control, activate only as a sorcery, and only if you cast three or more instants or sorceries this turn. Then on the back side, there's the Great Work, Chapter 1, the Great Work deals three damage to target opponent, each creature they control. Uh, chapter 2 is create three treasure tokens, and chapter three is until end of turn, you may cast instants and sorcery spells from any graveyard. If a spell cast this way, we put into a graveyard, exile instead, exile the great work, then return to the battlefield. So it turns back into Urbrask. Yeah. So this one was one of my favorites. And I think it's also a good example of what we were talking about before about net fun. So 
for, I looked at Urbass and I was like, oh, this card is almost certainly statted for standard. And um, statted, and by statted, I mean it's the its cost, its power and toughness, what it was doing, its shaped, looked like it was something that a standard player might want to do. And so we were having to keep that in mind. But what we know is this kind of card encourages a storm style of play. So a deck that's casting a lot of spells and is trying to sort of combo kill you uh, with a with storm. And we know that while player, there are some players who really do like that, like me, um, it's not always that fun for the whole table to have to go um, to do that. So what we were trying to do is what are the restrictions we can kind of put that would still, uh, what are the things we can do that would still get it in a good place for both people? So for us, that was like making sure the hoop of turning it from its face to a wrath was, you know, reasonable enough. And then also, um, it was very important to us that this only targeted an opponent rather than do something like each opponent or something like that. So these small tweaks were just things that we would do. And ultimately we still, it's still a card that I think I'm very excited to play. Um, so yeah, that's what we had to basically do with all of them had their own different challenges because creators in general are designed to be menacing and, and fierce. And so getting them all into spots where you know, commander players could reasonably play this and build around it and uh, still have fun uh, was was the challenge. But I think we it might be too soon, but I think we got there. I think we got there, hopefully. I'm sweating okay. a little bit. But. So we don't have a lot of time left. So what I want to do is go mm. quickly through the mechanics and tell yeah. me what, like, I, I would like your, your impression from a casual play standpoint, what do you think of the mechanic? Mm. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. First okay. up, backup. Backup. Um, backup was cool. Uh, yeah, I'm gonna out of out of five stars. I'm gonna get it. Give it three out of five. Three out of five. I okay. think it's kind of cool. Temporarily granting abilities, stuff like that. I think sometimes it would be nice if it was a little bit more impactful. But that was mostly, I think, for like limited reasons. Okay. Next up, convoke. Ooh, convoke. Really cool. Hard to hard to uh, cost appropriately, but pretty exciting. Like I think the the enchantment that lets you triple damage city on fire. It's five red 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 convoke, um, and then triples damage. That very exciting. I love convoke for those kinds of reasons. That lets you make big, expensive, but really cool stuff. So, so where is it on the like, LE five star rating? Oh, convoke is like a four out of five. Four out of five. Okay. Four out of five. My. My five rating is all problematic. I don't know if you want me to say five. <laughs> okay, so next up, Incubate. What do you think of Incubate for casual play? Ooh, Incubate, I would also say it was about a three. I think it was about a three. Like, still good, solid. Um, tokens are cool. Um, there's some really interesting synergies that end up being a little bit more complex than... Um, than I would always, than I would, than I prefer, uh, and I think maybe other players prefer. But it can be really cool when it all builds together. Okay, how about uh, Phyrexian? The creature type Phyrexian Mattering. What, what do you think of that as a? Ooh, I love Phyrexian Matters. I like typal stuff in general. I just think that is a super cool thing to build around is to have a deck that's very unified. It's like easy to understand, and also the Phyrexians are really just really cool to me so i was very excited by it yeah also there was um their knights mattered as well those are the two creature types yeah knights oh yeah that's right we didn't even get to talk about the eminence one that was something 
But so, yes, Knights Mattering was cool too. So as a general rule, when you look sort of an Eye of Commander, does there have to be a mm-hmm. certain number of them? Like, like Phyrexia, at least we recently, or you know, a year or two ago, like we right, took a lot of creatures and made them Phyrexian. So there's a lot of yeah. Phyrexian creatures out there. Mm-hmm. Um, and Knights, yeah, obviously, have you know, been around forever. Yeah, I think for me, there does need to be, I prefer there to be a certain quantity in a type um, so that players don't have to rely as heavily on changelings. And I think that's a little bit unsatisfying for for game reasons and mm-hmm. like flavor reasons. So I like there to be like a certain quantity. Um, so I think it's good that we went back and made other creatures for Xene to kind of make this all work together. Okay, so we're almost, I'm almost to my desk here. Um mm-hmm. So final thoughts on sort of March of the Machine, you know, now that you can have yeah. been through it all and it came out, what, what, what's your sort of final thoughts on it? Oh, I think that set is so cool. We, especially for where we are CP, in terms of CPD's development, I think that set was is so cool. It is really exciting. There's a lot there to play and dig into. Um that I could play that set for a while. And and I would say as a person who has now worked on um, multiple tentpole sets, multiple standard sets, and lots of um, different products, that is still one of my favorites as having very exciting characters, a lot of stuff for casual players. It's just like still one of my favorites, so. And just for the audience, for the timeline, it's, I believe Brothers War was the first set that uh, you guys worked on? The first set that we worked on was it, it was too late for Brothers War the main set, okay. but we were able to work on Brothers War Commander decks, and okay. then um, Phyrexia All Be All Will Be One was our first main set. Oh, okay, okay, yeah. So we're we're, we're early I mean, from the, we work ahead. So while you guys, oh, yeah. while the teams existed for a little while, we're just now starting to see the products you guys worked on. So. Yeah, we were fresh, fresh little children, but we we got it done. We we all we we were just. We got it done. It was great. Yeah, there's there's very exciting things. I mean, we can't talk about it yet, but there's yeah. very exciting things in the pipeline coming their way. So we kept you guys busy. So so yeah. I want to I wanna thank you for being with us today, Ellie. It was a lot of fun having you here. Mm-hmm. Thank um, you. Thank you. And everybody else, guys, I am now at my desk. So we all know what that means. This is the end of my drive to work. So instead of talking magic, it's time for me to be making magic. So thanks, Ellie. Thank you. And I'll see all of you next time. Bye-bye.